Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today, as very often, by Mr. Todd Waldron. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you today? Uh, I'm hanging in there. As you know, we were just discussing, I'm, I'm trying to get over this cough that I have from pollen and this drought we've got going on. Fortunately, we've been getting rain over the last couple of days, so hopefully we'll get a little bit of a respite from it. But man, it's been dry over here. I'm, is, is it the same in, in New York? Yeah, we've been in a dry spell here. We did have some much needed rain about a week ago. Um, so prior to that, it was extremely dry. We've been in a you know drought mode and uh, yeah, a lot of summer ahead of us. So need some rain. Yeah, absolutely. I have not had a chance to get out and do much fishing. Um, my son and I went out the other day, uh, just threw the canoe on top of the truck and went over to a little local lake and and cast for some bass and some panfish and uh it was it was a fun little outing but that's that's about it have you gotten out doing any fishing yet this summer so i snuck out this weekend um got the fly rod out went out on the headwaters of the hudson on saturday night and uh didn't catch any fish i was fishing for smallmouth with some hand-tied flies felt really good to be on the water been working really hard this summer so an hour, you know, with the wading boots on in the river felt amazing. So uh, it was time well spent. Yeah, we were uh, we were going to get out on on some streams down in the Driftless area this last week and uh, just didn't get a chance. But I, I want to get the fly rod out because uh, it's been a while for that. So um, today's conversation is actually uh, it's 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 an old one. <laughs> we got a few of these. We're going to start rolling out soon. And it's one that we recorded uh, about two years ago, actually, uh, with a couple gentlemen, one by the name of Kyle Daly, who works for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and Dan Bourne, who at the time, he and I were together uh, as board members for the Minnesota chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And um, what we're talking about today is what does it mean to be a conservationist hunter? And what has sort of gone into that, some of the history. So we get into Pittman-Robertson, which is a legislation that went through back in the 30s, to uh, a lot of the the modern things that are happening. And um, there are a couple references that are outdated at this point to some uh, legislation that was going through out in Utah and also some things with firearms. So one of the things that uh, Kyle brings up, which I think is is one of the, the tough discussions always, is when people ask, you know, how can be, you be a conservationist when you kill animals? And so, Todd, I, I don't know, you, you ever get posed with something like that? You work for a conservation hunting organization. And uh, is that something you've come across before? I think about that question all the time, Mark. I think it's an important question for thoughtful hunter conservationists to ponder and to think about. And we all have the reasons uh, around why we hunt and why we are conservationists. 
And, you know, it's personal. And I think for myself, it's kind of a personal idea. Um, I kind of think about conservation in two ways. Um, one way is kind of a structural way around land health, like Aldo Leopold would look at in terms of keeping all the parts in place and keeping ecosystems functional. And, you know, hunting in that aspect plays a role, you know, physically on the landscape um, and contributes to landscape conservation. Um, so it's not an easy question to answer. I mean, there's a lot of different angles. There's the moral question of it. There's the, you know, the practical question of it. Um, the other thing I think about hunting and conservation is that kind of my personal view is doing the right things for the right places and keeping the right landscapes intact. And um, hunters and anglers through their contributions, um, through Pittman-Robertson, through licensed sales, have certainly contributed a lot to that front. So difficult question to answer. It's something we all should think about. And I can't wait to hear Kyle and Dan and you uh, talk about this on the, on the conversation. I, I know Dan pretty well. And uh, I met Kyle at Pheasant Fest um, briefly last year. So two really thoughtful people. It's going to be a great combo. Yeah, it uh, it was a fun conversation. And I just listened to it again because it was so long ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about the North American model of conservation, which if you're not familiar with it, uh, listeners, um, just go out and Google it. Uh, the first, re uh, I think the first... Um, hit that'll come up is U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And it goes through the seven principles, you know, which are everything about, you know, wildlife as a public resource all the way through the democracy of, of hunting and how game and wildlife needs to be managed using science. And this would be an important thing, I think, for you if you're a new hunter to really understand as, a, as an element of it. We also talk about the difference between conservation and preservation, which is an important distinction too. So um, why don't we jump right into it and uh, today's conversation with Dan Bourne and Kyle Daly. Okay, we are here with Kyle Daly and Dan Bourne today. Um, so why don't you guys uh, introduce yourself and let, let people know, know who you are. Sure, I'm Kyle Daly. I'm, I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a uh, wildlife biologist for them. And uh, my main duties there are uh, ministering Pittman-Robertson money to the states. Uh, I grew up in Ohio, so I'm a Midwestern boy at heart. Um, I like Minnesota a lot better where I live now. So um, I really enjoy getting out hunting here. I started hunting after college, um, kind of one of those People that found a lot of time on my hands. I had a conservation ethic, and uh, I had a few good buddies that got me outside duck hunting at first, and then uh, moved on from there to doing a variety of different different hunting. And you are a uh, specialist in woodcock. Uh, <laughs> that's what people know me for, yeah. So I did my uh, master's at the University of Minnesota on woodcock ecology, so... It's one of my favorite birds and also one of my favorite birds to hunt, which is a kind of con a conundrum for some folks too. So Right, right. Uh, my name is Dan Bourne. I'm a uh, archaeologist and environmental analyst, formerly of the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, grew up in southern Minnesota, hunting and fishing pretty much my entire life. I uh, got my master's degree from St. Cloud State University uh, with a focus on um, archaeology and biogeography. So... I worked on um, 
a 9,000 year old buffalo kill site uh, in Nebraska as my as my master's thesis that tied in hunting and tied in uh, land use and tied in biology. So uh, that kind of wrapped that up and then went right into the Forest Service. I didn't know that that last piece there. You're gonna you're gonna in a little while. You're gonna have to share that with us. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd awesome. be happy to. I've, I've, it's uh, it was it's pretty cool. You know, reaching down through when you pick up a projectile point that's been lodged in the spine of a buffalo, you know, nine thousand years ago. For like from one hunter to another, just kind of reaching down and grabbing it for the first time, it's it's a pretty powerful. You did that. Yes. That's that's yeah, awesome. It's pretty cool. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. And you rebuild old motorcycles. Yeah, as, as a hobby, um, when I'm not hunting uh, to pass the the winter, rather than ice fish, uh, like most Minnesotans, I sit in my warm garage and work on old motorcycles. Love it, love it. So today's topic is conservation. And I think it's 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 such it's one of those topics that's so big, we could go on and on for hours. Um, and I want to focus on a few things here specifically, but maybe start very broadly, especially for those people who maybe don't know a whole, a whole lot about the conservation world. Uh, maybe they're just new to hunting. Um, you know, what does conservation mean to each of you? Kyle, you mentioned, you know, coming out of school that uh, you had a conservation ethic. Where did that come from and what does it mean to you? You know, it's it's hard to say, I think, a little bit um, growing up in a very industry and agriculturally driven community in Ohio. Um, conservation at that point in my life was backyard, creek down the street, uh, zoo, you know, type um, conservation. So <clears throat> I'm not trying to downgrade those things, but as I learned more through my education, I, I did an undergrad degree in, uh, biology, got a little bit more exposure to, to wildlife management and, and the out of doors. And then finally lead, leading to a master's degree in, in wildlife ecology. Uh, it just kind of expanded. So conservation now is, is part of my lifestyle. It's, what I know and what I breathe. What does that mean though? When you say it's part of your lifestyle? Uh, again, I think it's, it's somewhat hard to explain, but you know, you want to feel connected to the land and a steward of the land. So, um, professionally, I, I work for an agency that is very wildlife and fisheries focused. Um, I knew I wanted to work for a organization like that. Um, and personally, it's something that I, I do every day, think about, you know, what I'm taking out and what I'm putting back in um, to the landscape. Yeah. How about you, Dan? Uh, well, I was fortunate to grow up in a, on a family farm that had been uh, owned by my family since 1888. So uh, I guess over 130 years at this point. And that was always a multi-use, multi-purpose farm. Um, grew up hunting and fishing on it. It was right on the edge of the Minnesota River. And uh, so my initial, I guess, conservation thoughts were looking at the landscape that I occupied at that time, which was a, this 300-acre farm, uh, and how that could be improved and preserved for, for myself, but also future generations. And then working from that, going into the Forest Service, uh, that just exploded my whole worldview, and it became a, you know the mission of having these these multi-use, multi-purpose chunks of land for not only for me but for for all Americans to look at. So, kind of balancing that 
balancing the needs of a modern society while respecting the, the landscape as a whole. That's what conservation kind of is, is to me. I think it's a great way to put it. And I think it's, you know, that's the way I like to look at it in terms of, you know, we're, we're all here doing things every day. Uh, you know, we're, we're having an impact on the environment, whether we're, whether we're moving ourselves across ground or we're, we're taking and eating, what have you. And I, and it's easy just to, I think, just think about what you're taking out. Um, and I think it's important to, to think about what you can put back or how do you, how do you make sure that you're, you're offsetting that, that, that side of the equation and trying to balance it out a little bit more. Yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, conservation, I think the textbook definition was basically, uh, using resources, right? So there's this tint of, of use in everything we do. Um, it's not pure preservation. It's, you know, you don't block building fences and blocking areas off. You're actually utilizing the land. And that's, you know, I remember years ago, I think I've told people, say, hey, it was, there was a, somebody I, I, I saw speak once who talked about wanting to do conservation, but in reality it was preservation. And, and, and the, the point that he was putting forward was if we want to protect these wild places, we basically got to block them off. We got to keep people in the cities, which, which to me is the antithesis of, of what a sound strategy would be to, to having those places preserved. Because I think, you know, with an increasingly urbanized society, one of the things I love to do is introduce people to the outdoors and reconnect them to to those places because I think without that understanding and use of it, that uh, they won't have an appreciation for it. So I think it's 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 an important equation. Yeah, I mean the whole concept of of multiple use goes back to the conservation movement's founding, right? If you had guys like Roosevelt and Grinnell, Roosevelt himself considered the wild places an integral part of the American mindset mm-hmm. and to, to purposely remove someone from that in the, in the idea of preserving the landscape itself untouched. I think it's on the surface, it, it's a noble thought, but um, it robs, I think the American people of a lot of, of a huge part of our identity and the opportunity for the American people to show that it's a sustainable thing uh, throughout time. One one of the things uh, that I that I think maybe um, the general populace doesn't doesn't realize as much is is the contribution of of the hunting community and and we talk about that a lot and 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 I think it's one of those things where we try to be be um, just approach it in the right way not be all high and mighty but but basically just acknowledging the facts of what's out there because I think. Not only is there something to be prideful of, but there's something to be um, on watch for as we go forward. And I think we've got some some potential challenges on the horizon that we have to uh, that we have to address. But I guess going back maybe to the start, I want to chat about um, market hunting and really sort of the, the the start of of this ethic here in the United States that that is unique to to most places in the world. And so. Um, Kyle, you want to chat about chat about that? I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think you have to understand kind of again where where we came from to understand, you know, how hunting and and angling, fishing, contribute to conservation. Because a lot of in I think a lot of people's minds those are separate. You know, hunting is can't be conservation because you're killing. 
Um, I think a lot <clears throat> of people think that. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's a, that's a question I get all the time. Let's back up for a second. Mm-hmm. Explain what your job is and what <laughs> you mentioned. You mentioned Pittman Robertson. So right. maybe maybe give a quick summary of what that is, what you do. Okay. So uh, again, I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, here in Minnesota. Uh, we cover an eight-state region. So basically, the the Midwest, Minnesota down to Missouri, over to Ohio, basically Great Lakes states, if you will. Um, the premise of the Pittman-Robertson Act, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, is, is wildlife funding um, to the states from the federal government. So what I'm in charge of is basically reviewing state grant applications to get that wildlife-oriented funding to the state level to implement for a variety of conservation actions. So those are land acquisition and management, uh, wildlife research, wildlife surveys, um, a variety of things that, that state agencies, so the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, for instance, utilizes these funds to manage wildlife. Uh, and very similar on the on the sport fish side of the world, um, there's an act called the Dingle Johnson Act um, that kind of follows suit followed suit with Pittman-Robertson um, that basically does the same thing for sport fish um, in the States. And these were self-imposed, really, by, by the hunting, the fishing, or boating communities, right? Um, yes, and I, 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 I don't—it it was the sportsmen themselves, sportsmen and women themselves, that um, pushed for these things, right? So it was in this era of— you know, kind of this natural resources exploita- uh, exploitation of a diminutive attitude of natural resources. You know, we were market hunting, killing all the bison in the West, killing all these wonderful birds um, in Florida and along the East Coast for hats. Um, <laughs> but also at the same time, you had the Dust Bowl going on. So right. you're trying to till up prairie that blew away on you. And then also, you know, the the timber barons were operating at the time. So you just had this wide scale, you know, ecological kind of abuse. Distress and abuse. Yeah. yeah. What I think is interesting is, is so that was put in place in 1937, right? So eight, eight years after, after the start of the depression, people made that decision. Uh, The elected leaders and, 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 and these groups came together and pushed for an additional tax. I think it would be hard pressed to see that kind of a of a push today culturally. Right, and I don't want to overlook the the contributions of industry because it's actually uh, the you know these taxes are on firearms and ammunition, uh, bows, arrows, um, and then and then fishing equipment and motorboat fuel. So industry had a huge role in identifying and accepting these taxes on behalf of the users. So industry pays those taxes directly, and then the users theoretically reimburse the industry for those taxes right. through purchasing. Right. So going back, so so I, I'm jumping around here a little bit, uh, so explain what you do. Now going back to market hunting, late 1800s, we decimate uh, basically unregulated uh, harvesting of, of animals. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I kind of chuckled previously, and it's almost one of those, it, it's so ridiculous to think that, like, bow guns, like, boat-mounted bow guns were being fired at, uh, firing massive amounts of shot, 
uh, randomly at birds and slaughtering all these birds just so you know rich women in, in the big city could walk around with with plumage all over their hats it's right. it's it's uh, like a tragic comedy um but it really the more i look into the con- the history of conservation it, it all it all does kind of go back to birds uh that while that was happening you also had uh, a young Theodore roosevelt growing up who was obsessed with birds and you know he was obsessed with with uh, studying them and drawing them um and then as as he grew older and as they became a president establishing you know some of the earliest protected land in this country were bird preserves that, that he established uh and uh and then you know move jumping forward going into things like the duck stamp duck stamp act and stuff it's the birds have really taken a lot of abuse from us but also provided a way for us to to kind of reclaim some of that so we got that going on sportsmen women industry etc acknowledges there's a problem yeah we got to put this in place well I, also at the same time you have out of leopold on the conservation landscape you know just published his game management book you know he's the grandfather the father of wildlife conservation so um you know 1937 when when the 1930s when these things were happening he was also advocating for you know wildlife conservation from a a different perspective so from from so if like from Roosevelt and Grinnell to Leopold is like a 35 mm-hmm. it's like a generation a 35 right. 36 year gap to go from a few hundred years mindset of wild game is strictly or animals strictly as an extractive use to creating the conservation framework that will that has now been in place for 80 years and that's it's crazy to think about that that a couple of really big personalities like Roosevelt Cornell uh, Leopold um, uh, Hornady you know, th- that those guys created that out of almost nothing yeah and we get we get this North American conservation model uh, in place that uh, you know I don't think was really sort of codified till maybe a couple decades ago but really is based on these principles that these legends you know helped uh, help birth here in the country and, and really this attitude and this in this ethic um, I, the things like you know d- democratic rule law and wildlife being held in the public trust what's that do you guys know that what was that case out in the East Coast? That wasn't that the muscles I'm blanking right now on. Uh, you recall when that was? Yeah. So that oh, I don't know the year. It was really early on. What it was about was when um, I forgot the name. Was it? Is it King George? One of the one of the European kings, basically. When the when the Dutch especially settled here, Roosevelt, coming from a Dutch family, um, the the guy was basically granted a land title, much like he would have in the old world in Europe, and that that kind of rule kind of held on for a long time. And one day some, you know, muscle hunters, I don't know if that's the right term, but dudes, you know, pulling muscles out of, out of the sand were basically told to, to go away because, you know, this is essentially, this is the King's land or some Duke's land. And that, that ended up being, I guess, went to court mm-hmm. and being overturned and kind of establishing those foot, those first uh, footprints for, for building a conservation ethic for everybody. Uh, and I know, Mark, you had just mentioned um, the, the funding. Uh, 
aspect behind Pittman Robertson. If if you look the early days with with Grinnell and and Roosevelt, the North American model of conservation and, and those, those tenets like democratic rule of law and wildlife in the public trust and non-frivolous use, it's easy for someone with the wealth of Roosevelt to ascribe to that. You know, like when they created Boone and Crockett, it was a very exclusive club. The genius of Pittman Robertson is it, is it puts it, it brings it down to the people that they can, you know, their 10% can fund it in much the same way that this massive philanthropy from, from the wealthy could fund mm-hmm. it as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that I get concerned about these days. I think most people don't realize how unique our model is here in North America. You go to, I think, just about every other country. Maybe New Zealand is the closest to us. But, um, you know, you go to Europe, you go to a lot of places. It, it's only the aristocracy. It's only the wealthy who, who are able and, and, and given the opportunity to go out and be part of part of the hunting and, and fishing lifestyle, if, if you will. And I think, you know, having that sort of common person approach here is, is, is such a, such a cool thing. And, and I, I get concerned when I see some of the attacks on, on not really conservation, but also just public lands uh, and, and, and access and those types of things, because that is one of the, the defining underpinnings, in my opinion, of, of what enables this North American model to exist, which is access for all to these large tracts of land. Uh, you don't have to own 80 acres, 160 acres to be able to go out and, and hunt. Yeah, uh, yeah it's... It's crazy with, uh, I know recently, uh, I believe a senator from Utah, Mike Lee, put forth a, a bill to that in, that specifically says we should, dis- we should divest the public lands because public lands are a place for the elite only, which is, in my opinion, a, a really poor attempt at trying to flip the conversation on right. us. I mean, if you go back to even the, like the legend of Robin Hood, for example, we, we know as, as Robin Hood as robbing the rich to feed the poor. What he was literally doing was taking deer from the king's lands and giving it to the poor because the common people didn't have access. Uh, and jumping forward to, to when this country was founded, one of the things we wanted to do was, was put aside some of those old world ideas. And the public lands um, movement and the existence of public lands is about as an egalitarian and not elite idea as you can come across. Yeah, I think, and the Fish and Wildlife Service really strives to make sure that all the public are welcome on our public lands. You know, our National Wildlife Refuges, we have 560 plus nationally now, about 150 million acres, I think, or more. Um, anywhere from middle of Minneapolis, Minnesota Valley National Wildlife Refuge, which is highly urbanized. There's some other urban refuges throughout the U.S., you know, get tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of visitors a year, making sure that they have access to natural areas. It's such a part of the American way and the American people. And I think you know, on a personal level, um, you know, I'm a lot happier when I'm outside. Hey everyone, it's Mark. I hope you're enjoying this conversation in the podcast. If you are new to hunting and you want to continue down the path to becoming a hunter, make sure you check out huntingcamp.live. This is our online learning portal and you can go try it out for free. Get a lesson and see what you think. We do video-based learning and there are outdoor mentors in our community who are there to help you 
and answer questions you might have and get you into your local hunting community so that you can start down this path to a new adventure. Again, just go to huntingcamp.live. So, um, so Pittman-Robertson's put in place in 1937. It's an 11%, 10 to 11% tax on firearms, ammunition, archery equipment. Um, what does that mean, Kyle, in terms of, of dollars today? So as, if, we, if we think about conservation, I mean, that sounds like if you think about hunting, a lot of people out hunting, that's buying a lot of stuff. What, is, what does that equate to in terms of conservation dollars? Um, well, I think a lot, relatively, quite a bit, um, for a, a model that's built on, in this unique way, you don't see a model of, of funding for any sort of cause, um, built in this way much anymore. Um, so currently we're sitting between Pippin Robertson and Dingle Johnson, like I said, the sport fish act, uh, side of the coin, uh, we're over a billion dollars annually. Um, all of which goes back to conservation funding. I mean, some of it goes back to paying people like me to make sure to do the administrative work. But, uh, you know, in some way or form, it it puts conservation on the ground for people and for wildlife. So it goes back to the state. So, like, what are the are – there, are there restrictions or can they use it for uh, parks and, and they can use it for, you know, schools or what? Uh, so um, – no, there are restrictions, and there's there's quite a bit of them, and that's I think that's one of the reasons this model has gone so long, um, and it has been successful so long. Like Dan said, eighty years now, um, and that's because there are so many protections in place for what the what the money can be used for. Um, it's, it's all wildlife conservation or fisheries conservation. Um, it is protected by state law. Actually, that's one of the mandates that. Um, in order to be able to receive federal funds for these purposes, Pippin Robinson money and Dingle Johnson money, they the states have to pass uh, what we call assent legislation, which basically protects state license dollars. So if you buy a hunting license in Minnesota, that money can only be spent by the DNR for wildlife conservation. So, so it can't be bled off to any other projects. Correct. And, and you, sometimes you see, you see some, you know, usually it's... Um, People that aren't aware of the funding mechanism that they see a big pot of money yeah. at the state level and they want to get their hands on it, but um, they, they, you know, the state DNRs are very empowered and the Fish and Wildlife Service is very empowered to say this is by law has very specific uses. That's amazing. I mean, can you imagine even suggesting today that a a huge segment of the American public, a truly bipartisan segment of the American public, and industry would agree to a 10% increase on their taxes for products and then to actually have the money being used to where it was supposed to go to begin with the impossibility of that ever even happening today you'd be laughed out of the, the senate if you even suggested it yeah i mean th- there are so many cases of like you said of where when when a dollar comes in on this on this uh, side it's it's completely offset because it's something else is siphoned out the other the other end of it so that is i think a beautiful aspect of it right it's really i mean it's really created this positive feedback loop where this machine of Pippin robertson really feeds itself so you you think the more money that 
uh, is collected through these excise taxes that goes back into the system, back into wildlife conservation, means more access, means more research to be done, more science to be done on wildlife species. So it's really this, you know, mechanism that, that just keep, continues hopefully to grow. Yeah. Um, you know, both of these, both Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson, uh, you know, in 1937 when Pittman Robertson started, it was around a million dollars, a little under actually a million dollars that year. I think it was 1938 actually when they first had their uh, uh, first pot of money. Uh, P- uh, Dingle Johnson um, went through in 1950, um, and that was a little little over two million dollars. So these have grown to massive amounts comparatively to where they started. So your Pittman Robertson for the 2018 federal fiscal year was 850 million. It's a lot of 800 to 850 million. Yeah. And Dingle Johnson comparatively was, you know, 350 million. So, so here's my concern. Um, and that is that, um, you know, I look at these numbers of, of hunters and, and where the, the trend line is going and, and it's not good. Um, you know, in 1982, we hit a high of, of almost 17 million hunters in, in the U S and as of two years ago, that had dropped to 11.5 million. Um, now, there's obviously within there, there's bright spots um, of growth in certain areas, and there's certain aspects of you know firearm industry, sport shooting, et cetera, that is that's growth areas. Um, but overall, I, I'm concerned that over the, in, the, in the future, you know, where where are these dollars going to come from if those sales aren't happening? And, uh, and I don't think anybody has, has the answer to that right now. Um, and I think that's the conversation that's starting to happen in different pockets and I think needs to occur more. And we're going to need to get serious about it sooner rather than later as to how do we pay for conservation. And I think we've, we've relied on this, this program for a long time, and hopefully we can continue to rely on it, uh, for a long, long time. Um, but I think, I think we, as an outdoor community need to be creative and thinking in different ways that we're going to, that we're going to fund conservation. I mean, as as a hunter who at the end of the day, just wants to be out in the field hunting. It's a real dichotomy to to consider like, okay, hunter numbers are dropping, but yet it's not getting any easier to get that Wyoming out tag. Personally, if I can get a bunch of non-hunters interested in funding conservation for their own interest and not have to compete with them for tags, I would be, I'd be all on board. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been discussed, you know, the backpack tax, other, other terms like that, that have mm-hmm. been used. And I think uh, industry is, is basically, you know, said, said they'll pass, you know, up to this point. Uh, but I think those are the types of things we need to look at. And I think, I think as an outdoor community as a whole, that's, you know, Everybody who's who's participating in the outdoors that uh, relies upon these wild places and these wild animals and clean waters and fish uh, that we need to need to get creative on 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 those fronts. So you know, I guess where where do you think it would go, Dan? I mean, in terms of like what what other what other specific things have you thought of? Uh, I mean, I think a real good argument can be made for trying to get industry on board and. Uh, working with companies uh, that sell backpacks, that sell tents, to to advocate for this as well. I mean, it, it can be argued that you know f- the landscape that we engage in these outdoor activities on 
is funded through a bunch of resources, whether it's Habitat through Pittman-Robertson, you have the Land and Water Conservation Act, uh, which is generated largely from, is it money coming from oil and oil, gas, right? Yeah, offshore. Yep. So there's already a lot of uh, committed parties putting their two cents in. Um, I think they frame the argument the right way. Public lands are by and large multi-use lands. I think all those multi multi-uses should be willing to at least step up and have the conversation about how how you know dollars can be can be used to mm-hmm. to keep you know keep mountain bikers on mountain biking trails, to keep hikers hiking, to keep campers camping. Well, and I think it's it's even along the lines of you know so we have the decline in in, in hunter numbers. Uh, culturally, we're in a very precarious time uh, relative to attitudes of the average American around guns, uh, which is, you know, a big part of the funding is, is these taxes on this. Um, you know, you look at, at, at um, earlier this year when REI and Mountain Equipment Co-op, you know, they they uh, halted orders from Vista Outdoors after after the shootings that we had, the, those horrible shootings from, uh, from from that company. And I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges out there and I and I think that's where we need to need to look look at the positive side of things and what are the what are the creative ways we can we can head into the next decades and and the next century making sure that we protect these places because there are a lot of pressures on them and, I, and those are not going to decrease I think they're just going to increase. Yeah, I mean, and really, I hate to use the internet as a, as a sounding board for culture in general, but when when, when I talk to people hey, online, everybody does that that um, <laughs> yeah, for good or for bad, uh, that maybe are you might want to call an anti hunter or, or against guns. A lot of it has to do with like, and we ask them, "Have you ever hunted before? Have you ever fired a gun before?" Well, no, but. And it's like, well, <laughs> there, there, there's maybe they have never had the opportunity to actually go out and do it. Mm-hmm. And that is really all that's, I think, getting in the way of of people, uh, whether it's changing minds or just adding additional perspective. It's like, well, it's hard to blame someone who's never had the opportunity or never maybe even taken the opportunity to go and, and try it for themselves. Yeah. That's at least, everyone should at least have the chance to to form their own opinion. Yeah, no, no absolutely. How do you guys answer the question when somebody says, and, and Kyle, you touched on earlier, you said it's a difficult one, when somebody's like, how can you be a conservationist, or how can you love those animals, and then you go and kill them? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's more difficult for me now, because I know so much more about it than I did when <laughs> I first started hunting about the funding mechanisms and things. But, um, you know, I hear, I hear the arguments about uh, population control sometimes. I hear the arguments about uh, the funding sometimes. Um, and I don't disagree with those, but I know it's much more complex than that. So, Mm -hmm. and it's very, it's a very personal thing. Um, so, you know, I, 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 from a, from a federal perspective, I try to explain to them how, you know, these places are purchased, you know, we're talking national wildlife refuges. A lot of those were purchased by waterfowl stamps. Um, same with, waterfowl protection or production areas, uh, WPAs, which are federal, um, on the state side, they use a lot of Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson money to buy land as well. So these places are, are purchased and protected by the hunting and angling community, um, for everyone's use. I mean, not ev- not everyone, but, uh, for reasonable use, um, which includes hunting and fishing. So, you know, it takes time, I think, to make that argument. I think it takes people like kind of like Dan was talking about, they need to be receptive to what you're saying, not just confront you um, and, and 
have a rebuttal right away. You know, they need to accept what you're saying and, and vice versa. You should accept what they're saying, where they're coming from. Because for me, that that's useful information because if I come across that conversation in the future, I can kind of maybe understand where that next person is going to be coming from. Yeah. F- yeah. I mean, for me, it's all about context. And to me, there's no better way of building some context than through a little you know, venison diplomacy. Um, <laughs> I, I've got a, I've got a bunch of friends who, who may never hunt in their lives. Um, maybe they're not interested or, or whatever, but, uh, they're always interested in me bringing over venison. So like every Thanksgiving, we have a giant party with like 30 people show up and I, I bring over a, a pot of, you know, venison, uh, barbacoa or something. And, and it's gone by the end of the night. I mean, it's, it's really important to talk about the, the money that's re- the money that is, is raised and the work that's been done. But you know, a little, a little taste of what it's sure. all about. It helps make some of that context. And totally. the, the more we can do that, the better. That's probably just because I'm like a populations guy, you know. I think, oh yeah. You know, how do I make everything in the world make sense in ten minutes? But yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think you said. What did you say a minute ago? You said something along the lines of it takes time to mm-hmm. to for that to to occur. And I think you're right. I think that's exactly it. And I and I and in this day and age, everybody wants an answer. They want a response right away. They wanna they want to know what it is. You just ha- it's mm-hmm. a binary thing yes or no is it it's quick um it's in the it's in uh, 240 characters wait how, how long is a tweet I'm, I'm it's been extended it. to yeah. 240 is it 240 yeah um but it does it takes time there's and and that's what's different about it it mm-hmm. takes thought it takes it takes something a lot of times to experience in venison diplomacy i like that i've never heard that. i didn't make that up i, I heard you? that from somebody it wasn't I, it's not my line though i use yeah. it though as much All as possible tribute. it's All not going to be as common as you know, baseball, football, basketball, softball, those types of things for, for especially younger Americans or younger people mm-hmm. um, to get involved with because it's not a, a daily digested thing for most people. You know, it's not something that really hits them in the face like the game on the TV or right recess. But so. thinking about where your food comes from is mm-hmm. increasingly hits us in the face every day. There's more and more people. And I mean, I can't think of an easier argument for hunting than talking to someone who actually cares about where their food comes from. I mean, I can, um, depending on how lucky I am during a season, I can have, uh, I can feed my family on venison that I, that I killed on my family farm or antelope that I shot in Wyoming. I can, we, we can be eating, uh, morel mushrooms that, that grew underneath an elm tree that the deer might've died under. I mean, it doesn't get more local than that, and uh, that perks people's ears up. It's this, it's this exact same concept as working with CSAs and local farms. It's right there alongside all that. And that's, I mean, that's kind of where I came from too. I, I said that I started hunting, you know, after, after college. I guess I was, you know, after my undergrad years when I was busy and, and in an urban environment, and I had a few friends take me out. But I had this. You know, I'm not like an ex-tree hugger or anything like that, but I I was very much of an ethic of, you know, more preservation lines, you know, protection. And it wasn't until that, you know, kind of this whole conservation mechanism and everything made sense to me that I, and I cared about where my food came from, obviously, um, that I really attached to it. So you started in your 20s, in your early mm-hmm. 20s, one of the things relative to, I think, where we're at in society these days, uh, as everybody's a consumer, is 
the erroneous assumption you need to spend all this money, get all this equipment. Did you, when you started hunting in your 20s, did you buy all the fancy gear and have all the newest camo and the, and the Gore-Tex boots and the uh, merino wool uh, undergarments that are so awesome and I love wearing? <laughs> But I just, I get concerned that, I get concerned that, that, that we put too much of a hurdle, a financial mm-hmm. hurdle in front of people getting into hunting or, or fishing rather totally. than just say, no, 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 here, here's the, here's the simple level. You know, you can maybe borrow a gun or here's, here's some inexpensive options. You can go out in jeans with, with some high tops or, or whatever. Um, you don't have to have to go all in right away. Uh, no, I, I didn't buy any thing i borrowed it all um from those same buddies that said hey you want to go duck hunting it's like well what do you need you know and they do got a pair of waders that fit and a jacket and i borrowed a gun and went after it um you know and since then you know i've now been hunting for 10 years um but i've made it a point to make sure i have extra equipment for other people as well you know and make sure that i have things available for the same reasons because you know, if you're interested and, and you don't necessarily, you don't know if you're going to want to do this for long term. So you don't want to invest a bunch of money into it. And then, you know, here's an extra jacket. Um, and we actually, uh, here in the, in the Midwest region for fish and wildlife, we started a loaner program for hunting equipment, um, in our offices. So, um, those things are available for people that are interested to go out. That's great. I, I love it. And and that's, I, I, I keep extra stuff on hand too, for the same reason. And, and I think it's one of those things where if, if we just tell, tell people that here's a way to get in simply, simply, I think we'll have more people doing it. And in the long run, they're going to ultimately, they're going to buy all that and they'll buy it in, in large quantities probably because <laughs> they do like you and I, where they're, yeah. where they're buying stuff for other people also. Um, but I think we just need to be be wary of that with with new hunters yeah you can do a lot with a little i I mean i've been bumming around with a with the same 870 shotgun since i was 13 and with you know a short barrel slug barrel and uh a bird barrel you can walk out of a a fleet farm with that shotgun for right around 300 bucks and with it hunt almost everything that's legal to hunt in minnesota (laughs) you know from squirrels rabbits uh, with some lighter loads, uh, deer, waterfowl, uh, w- wild turkeys. I mean, I'm, the majority of game I've taken in my life has been with that one $300 shotgun. Best all-around gun right there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so we're uh, we're in the middle of summer here right now. Are you guys mm-hmm. going fishing or hunting or doing anything here soon? You know, I, I regret to say this, but I have not been fishing this summer. Um, for uh, I was traveling a lot in the spring and um my boat's in storage up at my buddy's house and near detroit lake so i've uh not been fishing this summer so but shame I, on you. yeah but i i still i have a bird dog at home and and we get out training um quite a bit go up north and try to find some wild birds here and there too so get not re- to shoot yet just yeah to, <laughs> getting ready for um, grouse season getting excited it's oh yeah out. uh yeah it's a holiday for me i'm a big big grouse and woodcock hunter um go up north and and just walk around the woods and you know put a gps point on my truck so i make sure i can make it back and then i just walk all day you know it's it's very active and what do you love most about about that type of hunting um i think it's it's 
somewhat of a, a seclusion. You know, you're not sitting still somewhere. I mean, you know, deer hunting is usually in a stand and you're sitting still or a blind and you're sitting still. This is a walk in the woods with, you know, a dog and some of your best friends. And you don't, you don't have to talk to, at all. You know, you just stroll along and, and hopefully your dog goes on point. And uh, I'm a pointer guy, so hopefully it goes on point and you can see a grouse because you count flushes and not dead birds in the back. So that's great. Dan, you got anything coming up? Uh, well, for the first time in a lot of years, I've actually focused on fishing a lot this summer. Uh, finally back at it after taking quite a few years off. Uh, mainly mainly because my, my son, Jack, just turned five, and he's been begging to go fishing and hunting uh, for about a year now. I'm not sure my wife will let him go to the tree stand with me quite yet, uh, but fishing something we can do. He had just caught his first panfish last week on a just a cane pole and a... Um, panfish uh, popper, popper fly which is awesome <laughs> i mean he was good for about a half hour caught his fish and then he and then he kind of swam and played the rest of the night and uh, we just kept hammering uh, panfish and took him home he watched me fillet him and we you know made some fish tacos and uh it's, it's awesome it's just a really cool he was he was surprised to find out that when you pull a fish in it's not dead already he was like whoa what's going on here it's, it's, it's flopping around but once we got him over that bit of a, a hurdle he was he's all in that's great. That's great. You gonna you got any plans for hunting this fall? Uh, right now, for sure, the Black Hills. I'll be going out to uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota with my brother and my dad on a, on a bow hunting trip for whitetail, which should be fun, challenging, but fun. And then if I can swing it, uh, a friend and I may go out to Nebraska, northwest Nebraska, near where I did my research, my grad research, to hunt uh, whitetail with our rifles uh, somewhere around... Uh, the Shadron, the Pine Ridge area. So there, there's a there's like a little eight, seven eight thousand chunk of wilderness out there that that from what I understand public land gets pretty hammered out there. But that wilderness might might give us some opportunities to go. And now you're telling everybody about it there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll see you out there if you want, if you can <laughs> if you can out hike me and and that's fine. That you've earned it. So yeah. Okay, we forgot to jump back to this. Your research, your master's research. So oh, I yeah. want I want to hear about this. All right, so uh, my undergrad was was in archaeology, and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I, I knew what I wanted to do with it, but went out west. I uh, worked as an archaeologist for, for as a technician, a shovel bum is what we're called. Those kind of seasonal uh, technicians that just bounce from job to job looking for survey work. Went to grad school and was matched up with uh, a geography professor who specialized in biogeography, specifically microfossils in plants. Um, and then I also was matched up with an archaeology professor that was in charge of the Hudson Ming bison bone bed. That's uh, in northwest Nebraska. It's a 9,000 year, a little over 9,000 year old bison kill site uh, that was used uh, over quite a long time as a means for you know early uh, Native American groups to get a hold of bison meat. They still don't know how exactly. The landscape mm. itself doesn't really uh, suggest a, a, bite, a buffalo drop or there's really no evidence of corrals. So there's a bit of a mystery as to what, to how it, how it worked. But uh, my job was to uh, take, uh, as part of the digs, was to take uh, soil profiles going from, you know, the earliest, the deepest portion of the site to modern times and analyze the um, the soil makeup. So we looked at... Uh, fossils that are left by plants. So the plants will, just to get a little in the weeds, literally here, uh, nerdy science stuff, 
plants take in water, and one of the things they do with that water, uh, or with the water comes silica. And plants will actually, as a preservation method, surround some of their cells with silica, which is glass and sand, right? Uh, on a microscopic level. So when those plants die, that silica falls and stays in place. So you've got all these millions of little tiny fossils that uh, under a microscope you can figure out you know, which family they came from, which family of grasses they came from. Um, so we looked at the stomach contents of the bison. We looked at uh, the surrounding area and were able to kind of identify what the climate was like during different times of the site's use, as well as, um, you know, what they were eating at the time, um, which compared to today, the site back 9,000 years ago seemed much wetter. There's a, we saw, found like microfossils from sponges and hmm. different aquatic plants as well as grasses. Uh, so it, it's used as a tool to, to reconstruct an early environment. That's crazy. So like this, this area is just filled with, with, with bison remains? There was, so how it was found was a dude was about to excavate out a hillside uh, to increase his stock pond for, and all these bones started coming out of the hill. I think it was in the 60s maybe early 70s, and there's all these bones started coming out. And at first, they thought it was just like sheep bones, and then they brought in some scientists, and uh, it turned out to be buffalo bones, bison bones. And at first, they thought it was a single-kill event, but there's the uh, butchered remains of about 600 buffalo. Uh, over time, over the last 30, 40, 30 years of, of research, it's shown that there's different cultural components. So the site was used, however it was used, it was used for five or 600 years, I believe, if I remember right. And the way they can identify that is that there's an Eden point from, you know, like 9,000 years ago uh, embedded in the spine of a, a buffalo or bison. And then above that, there's a newer style of projectile point. So they can, they can look at, like, there's different, different cultural markers through time, but they were using the site for the same purpose. Uh, it, was really, it was really cool to be part of. Are they still working on that site? Or? Yep. Yeah. Uh, the St. Cloud State uh, is, is in charge of, I think, I believe Dr. Muniz is still there working on that site. Um, there's, there, it was really neat, like I, like I mentioned uh, early on, being a hunter, being at a, what's clearly a, a butchering site or a campsite where meat was processed, not too much different than we process it now, you know? <laughs> so just taking the same cuts. Um, you know, to keep some things were obviously kept for, uh, for lack of a better term, a trophy, right? They've never found, uh, any of the skull caps from those bison. The skull caps were removed, pulled off a site somewhere. So, you know, people have been not only hunting and killing meat, but also keeping tangible memories of, of, of those experiences with them uh, since, since people have been on this continent. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That is, uh, that's fascinating work. I didn't realize I was going to be such smart guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little rusty on my Paleolithic dates, so some of those dates might be wrong, but yeah, that's amazing. Pretty, it sounded pretty good oh, to me. Man. Well, hey, I appreciate you guys taking time to uh, sit down and chat about conservation today. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Anytime. Oh, thank you. Anytime. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.